Hello everyone, welcome to Reason for Hope. We're glad you joined us today. Uh, however you have stumbled upon our broadcast, or maybe you're here on purpose, we are glad that you're joining us. The Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast which is dedicated to and guided along by your questions on the Bible. We're on multiple online platforms and you can send in your questions through the various chat functions. And uh, we love to find the answers to those questions in God's Word, the Bible. So maybe there's a specific verse or passage of Scripture you'd like explained a little better, something that's confused you, maybe even something you're uh, going through in your life, something you've experienced and you'd like to know what the, the Bible says about it, what's God's view on those things, lifestyles, etc., these decisions that we make and directions in life, maybe even other religions and belief systems and worldviews as they compare to the Bible and Christianity. All, any question like that, as long as, it, as long as it is an honest question, a sincere question, uh, we're happy to receive those. And as long as you know, like I say, the, the Bible is where we find the answers on the show. On this show, we want to uh, give you God's Word as accurately as we possibly can. That's what we're all about here at Reason for Hope. So we're glad you're joining us, and we'd certainly invite you to send your questions in. I'll be going over those platforms in just a moment. My name's Dave Robson. I'm your host today. With us today, just uh, just lonely old Pastor Sean Richards over here. Just the two of us once again. How are you doing today? Not worse. And hopefully, uh, <laughs> as needed, I'll have some cough drops ready just in case I'm not as clear as I need to be. That's good. You have a very whispery, sincere kind of tone going on. But there's been something kicking around the desert here. I'm still congested and getting over it. I don't know if it's allergies or sicknesses or both. But we are here. We're excited. We're not going anywhere. We are with you for the next hour. And we're glad you're out there too. Well, as I mentioned, a reason for hope is a live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. here in Mountain Standard Time in Tucson, Arizona. Don't be uh, misled by my accent. We are in Tucson, Arizona, here in the Wild West, uh, where we're broadcasting from. It's a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. If you're in the Tucson area, you are more than welcome to come and check us out if you're looking for somewhere to fellowship. CalvaryChristianFellowship.com is our website. You can find more details there. But we're right near Prince and I-10 on the west side of the freeway in the business park right there. Pretty convenient location that we enjoy. Uh, but CalvaryChristianFellowship.com, you can check out the different events we have and services that we have. We have so many groups, Bible studies, sport groups, events coming up. There's a full festival coming up we're arranging right now. It's going to be a lot of fun. So have a look around our website and uh, don't be a stranger. But for the purposes of tonight, uh, watch the, the Watch Live tab right there. If you click on that, it will take you to our live page. Or if you just type in ccftucson.online.church, that will take you to the same place. And we're streaming live right there. So you'll see the video. You can sign in with the username. And uh, there's a chat function where you can send your question in. And I will be monitoring those as we go along. When we're offline, you'll see a countdown to the next event. And you'll see a schedule of upcoming events as well. We stream our services to these same uh, platforms. And of course, Monday through Friday, a reason for hope. We're live with you. We're on Facebook as well, facebook.com slash CCF Tucson. Or look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Don't forget to like and share. We'd appreciate that to just spread the ministry. And that's another way you can send your question in. I'll be checking the, uh, the chat box. Uh, attached to the video there on Facebook for your questions as they come in. And we certainly welcome those, as I mentioned. We have an app as well for your mobile device, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Look for that red background with the white Calvary Chapel Dove logo, and you can download that on your uh, iPhone or Android or mobile device, and you can watch us wherever you are. Uh, we also have a, Roku, uh, a channel on Roku and Apple TV as well. So if you go to your channel store and uh, add us as a channel, 
on Roku and Apple TV. You can watch us on your big screen, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We're on YouTube as well. A Reason for Hope is the name of the channel there on YouTube, A Reason for Hope. Uh, once again, don't forget to like and subscribe. And if you click on that notification bell, you'll get a little, uh, little reminder, a little notification when we go live, so you won't have to miss anything. It's a great plus place for archive as well. Uh, if you go to that live tab, um, anytime we've been live, it archives there. And we upload like question of the week and things like that as well on our services. So some great video content there for you on YouTube, a reason for hope. Our senior pastor, he's not with us uh, today, but uh, Scott Richards is the senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship and the founder of this ministry and show. If you on Twitter would like to follow along with him, Scott R4H is his handle. Scott, letter R, number four, letter H. He posts highlights from the show and commentary on um, world events and uh, end times, uh, prophecy and things like that. So much going on in the world uh, that uh, the Bible has predicted and talks about, and he has a great way of um, relating those things. He often gives us a little update on the show when he is here as well, uh, which I personally really appreciate. Uh, so follow him with, uh, on Twitter with Scott, Scott R4H. He posts some funny things as well. So um, you can find him there on Twitter if you're a Twitter kind of person. Uh, we're on Rumble as well. We don't uh, stream live there, but we have archive videos, A Reason for Hope Bible Q&A on Rumble. And then our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questionsforhope spelled out, gmail.com. You're welcome to email us there anytime and your questions as well. I'll be checking that as the show goes along. You'll want to use that if you're listening to us on the radio, on Reach Radio or one of the other radio affiliates. You'll want to use our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com, because you are listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded. We're not live with you on the radio, so to speak. Uh, but you can shoot us an email there, and we'll get to that question on our next uh, show. So whatever platform you found us on, we're very glad you're out there. Send your questions in. We're going to uh, just berate Sean here with the questions, see what he can do, take him out for a spin, see uh, how many questions we can get to today. Uh, so we're very glad for you, the viewer. Well, why don't we pause to pray? I think we need it. We could both use it yeah. every day. Yeah. All right, Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. I want to invite you to be here as well. Or two or more are gathered in your name. We pray that your spirit would be there in the midst to not only edify and exhort and comfort your people, but to give us another reason to be thankful for you today. We're abiding and dependent on your mercy, and we're only relating your wisdom and your word because of grace. So I pray it would be received on the same basis and related to others as you equip and enable us with the opportunities to do so. Protect me from error and protect those listening from receiving it and allow us to be able to convey your voice as well as your words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you for that. Um, well, we had a question. We were going to try and get to it yesterday. We didn't, but we just uh, nudged it over to today a question from Ali um, Christmas is coming oh boy <laughs> I can't believe how someone should tell the air <laughs> yeah someone should tell the air I can't believe how late in the in the year it's getting already it's amazing but um, Ali asked should I let my little one believe in Santa Claus this is a bit of a discussion around Christians um, you know, some people think, isn't it lying to our children if we uh, tell them about uh, Santa Claus and that they comes down the chimney and all that kind of stuff. Some people have said, you know, if they find out that I've been lying about Santa, will they think I've been lying about Jesus? And these are some of the things I have heard. So is it harmless to maybe have some fun with Santa Claus or is that something that, that we would avoid? 
It depends on the kid. I think if you know the temperament of your child well enough that they'll understand the difference between a game and uh, modern embellishments on a historical figure. Uh, the best way, I think, to approach this issue, especially among social circles and parents that haven't told their kids about Santa Claus, if you just tell them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, I've seen from firsthand experience that uh, when a kid has something they know, know that everyone else doesn't, they can leave uh, some kids with tears at the end of the day. So the idea, I think, is to be tactful as far as your child's temperament is concerned. If you want to make sure that they are, of course, an individual who is willing to look things up in the uh, iPad generation, a Google search is not that hard to accomplish, let alone uh, the social media platforms that will debunk everything their parents are telling them. If you're concerned about how they react to information and saying, well, if they found out is lying and so on and so forth, the best way, I think, to approach that kind of individual is to, first of all, make sure that they understand just the facts and that they understand the difference between who St. Nicholas of Myra was and how he's portrayed in modern culture, where those things came from. And these will naturally be more for your benefit than theirs. But uh, yeah, someone talks about Santa Claus with me. I just so yeah, he uh, punched a heretic at Nicaea. That's, of course, uh, a little bit of a jab, but when it comes to, pun intended, the uh, idea of St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, the historical character he's based on, was 100% real. He was one of the individuals who attended the Council of Nicaea and in addressing the Arian heresy, people that denied that Jesus was divine. So the idea of their, uh, of this... Uh, I guess controversy is concerned is where all the, like you said, him coming down the chimney in his big red coat and saying ho, 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 and all that stuff. That's more, and I mean this as literally as I possibly can, of a recent addition to the mythos, if you will. Uh, St. Nicholas of Myra, albeit a historical figure, uh, it's not live in the North Pole. Uh, that was intended to be an advertisement for well, again, uh, a few things. I won't bore you with the details right now. If you want to go more into it, we can address this in detail when Christmas comes close. And in prior broadcasts, we have gone into it in more detail. You can look those up. But the idea of him even wearing a red coat was a Coca-Cola ad. Before that, his <laughs> coat was brown, as most coats tended to be. So when we're talking about these issues, it's been something that's certainly developed over time, much like with Halloween, much like with other things that draw a lot of controversy and have a lot of odd information around them. But if it's understood, and I'll, I'll repeat this because it is the point, if it's understood as a game, then they're not going to be devastated when they find out that some of the details have been embellished for the sake of entertainment. But in the same way, if they just can play along and adjust accordingly when they're old enough, then it doesn't have to be broached as a subject. It's just something that you can do for fun. Now, if, again, you know the kid's flexible, enjoys fun, that's fine. If you know the kid is going to look things up, then make sure that what comes from you is the truth and that they are able to distinguish that. And then lastly, if you think it's going to be that much of a stumbling block both to you and your kids, then you're allowed to approach Christmas as a remembrance of the birth of Christ, not necessarily of the uh, 
interesting machinations of how the presents got there. Yes. Just make sure it's fun. Just make sure that you make it fun. And if it's not going to be fun in the cleanup process that will inevitably happen, just make sure you clarify the details and you'll be fine. If you want to, you know, avoid some of the otter conversations, uh, the idea of, oh, well, Santa, you know, you move the A around and it spells Satan. You see, it's a demonic thing. Um, No, Santa is shorthand for saint, and that was a reference, of course, to the historical figure. There's some people who say, uh, oh, there was that Finnish radio program that invented it, and it was actually a pagan figure. You do your homework, there was Santa Claus stories circulating a long time before that radio broadcast. It was, again, in the late 1800s, very recent history. I know I, I said that intentionally, but when it comes to it, what do we know about him? He was real. Right. He's a historical figure. We'll see him in heaven. He knew the Lord. Mm. But when it comes to what he does, just make sure he understands the game. You'll be fine. Yeah, very good. Well, thanks, Ali, for that question. Hopes that, hope that helps you out and starts to get us in the uh, Christmas spirit, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe a little early. Uh, we had a question from Sui come in about uh, Bathsheba. Um, oh, Sui's question was... Uh, it was Bathsheba just as guilty as David, and also why is she called Bathsheba? Is this a coincidence, or are names and numbers significant, and a prediction of uh, the future or somebody's future? So was she just as guilty as David, and was her name significant? Predicting of their future, what like, like given a name because that's what you're going to do with your, you know, the meaning of the name is a prediction of your future and what you're going to do and, and achieve, I think, is what she's saying. Well, I don't know what Bathsheba would be a prediction from. If they're drawing attention to the term bath, that's hopefully Maybe. normal. But <laughs> when we're talking about um, names being significant, I'll start with that. Uh, some people in the ancient world were given names as a prophetic sign and of course would have some sort of significance in regards to a prophecy. Uh, The best example I can give is a passage, hopefully, speaking of Christmas that you're all familiar with, the virgin birth passage. It was essentially sandwiched in between a very interesting prediction that would essentially predict the end of the Syrian Empire. And the name of the child that would be given, this is in Isaiah chapter 7, was, and you can suffer along with me in my attempts to pronounce it, but essentially it is at the end of it, it shall come. So when this child was named accordingly, it was supposed to be a prediction of the future, not necessarily for that child, but for the sake of adding emphasis to the prophecy that before this child is weaned off of, you know, mommy's milk and so forth, this kingdom's going to come to an end. And it did, so take that for what it's worth. Mm. There's other people who are named in light of historical events. Uh, For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the child of the corrupt priests and the grandson of the second-to-last judge of Israel, Eli, uh, he was named Ichabod, which means the glory is departed, because Mm. at the time that he was born, the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines in battle due to the decision-making of their father. But when it comes to that being a prediction of his future, that's no more, I guess, a uh, 
uh, uh, condemnation of the kid's future than the name Jabez. Uh, he was the child of a prostitute and neglected and basically considered a liability. But he grew up to be an individual who feared God and was a positive example. And his prayer was, despite his name as you know, a burden or an aching, that he wouldn't be that, that he wouldn't live up to his name's sake. So it's not uh, a doomed-to-fail name in that sense. Mm. Uh, and then there's, of course, people who were renamed by God. Uh, Israel's the most significant one. Instead right. of Jacob, which means usurper, he was named God's prince, Israel. Mm. Um, but going back to the idea of Bathsheba's culpability in Second uh, Samuel, we aren't told. And so it's kind of unwise to attribute motive. I know in the social media platform, hashtag me too, or hashtag, you know, all women and all that stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. it, either way, you're going to be going off of information you simply don't have. There's a reason attributing motive is a logical fallacy, because you don't know if you weren't told, either by that individual or it was revealed. Uh, when it comes to David, again, he was fully culpable, and he was the one addressed directly by God as responsible. Mm -hmm. So given the information we do have, uh, there's one of two options. He pressured her into it, or he charmed her into it. But either way, the responsibility was held on David's part as the moral agent who knew better. As right. far as the long-term benefits, I think there's stretching information to say that he forced himself upon her. Uh, we see that she and he had a very positive relationship after the conception, and that's just not the kind of behavior you see from an assault victim. Right. Even in Stockholm Syndrome, you need more than, you know, a month before yeah. charming your best friend's wife into a relationship. Mm -hmm. So I think it's more in the likelihood he charmed her or he used his... Uh, a status as a king to, you know, oh, I can step up in society through this. We don't know. Yeah. But all we can know is what we're told. I'd stick to that. So regarding the names, uh, not always. Um, as far as a prediction of their future or a curse, uh, there's conspiracy theories and biblical numerology. Don't do it. It's, it's either false or it's reading back into things that have already been verified, and anyone could do that with anything. Uh, I could, you know, uh, use the uh, numerical codes of this facial tissue seats and the significance of why it was spelt that way in order to predict the, uh, you know, 7-Eleven attacks, if we're going to reference your neck of the woods. 9-11, yeah. so and it was our big terrorist moment. There was a train bombing. But... Uh, you, I can read back anything if I establish a pattern. That's not something that you look forward to. We have prophecies that plainly spell things out, and those are the things I'd stick to. There are names with prophetic significance. Isaiah 7 is an example, mm -hmm. but not always. And I just stick to what we're told, again, in both regards. Gotcha. Thanks, Sean. And uh, Thank let, let me know if... Um, for those listening on the comments section, if uh, I need another cough drop, if I'm not coming in clearly, I want to make sure that you can understand all this, yeah. but I'm doing the best I can. It seems to be coming in pretty strong, so I think we're doing okay, but yeah, for sure, let us know. Uh, thank you, Suri, for that uh, that question. hope that helps you out with that. Question from Yari. Is Cornelius and the Roman centurion in Matthew one in the same person, or could it be his son? How did the centurion know about God? is Yari's question. Okay, well, we can split that up. Um, 
A centurion is not a family name, it's a military title, like century, a hundred years. A centurion was a Roman designation over a hundred men. So in a legion, you had, you know, all these different uh, titles given the kind of charge you were given over, you know, to spare you the Latin. It's, you know, squad leaders, company leaders, and legion leaders, and all that other stuff, usually associated with generals. But when it comes to centurions, plural, there were many stationed throughout the province of Judea, just like every other Roman province, because a Roman garrison was around one to two hundred men. So at a minimum, excuse me, in any given location, you would have at least two to support the order of the soldier stationed there. So when it comes to Cornelius, uh, we're actually told in the book of Acts that he was from the Italian regiment, which means, you know, from Rome itself. Mm. He was was trained in the motherland, so to speak. Um, Whereas the centurion that's mentioned in the gospel accounts, not just Matthew, but Luke and Mark as well, uh, he isn't given designation as far as where he's trained. He is only told to be a man of upstanding character who had built a synagogue out of goodwill for the Hebrews that he was stationed with. And then, of course, he had a servant who was sick and Jesus healed him. Uh, He also had more faith than all the disciples put together, but you could read that on your own as well. The tricky business is when people say, well, how could he have known about God? That's not something we're told in the text, but it's something that's fairly easily deduced given the fact that anyone who lives anywhere for a set period of time is going to pick up a bit on the culture. Uh, What I mean is this, if you want to ask someone about, you know, the Bushido Code, for instance, but they're from America, how are they going to know? Well, if they were in the military and they were stationed in Japan, one of the several military bases we have there as a result of the MacArthur Act, it's not going to be hard for them to be able to say, oh yeah, I picked up a little Japanese culture, a little bit of Japanese language, even a little bit of a Japanese disease, if you know what I mean. The idea behind a centurion totally insulating himself from the culture that he was given charge over, especially to positive influences to their communities like Cornelius and the other, uh, is not obviously beyond the realm of possibility. For example, if this guy was building them a synagogue, I don't think that was with disposable cash, and he's like, oh yeah, this will please the plebeians. No, he he understood that this is where they gathered to worship their God, this is where they read their scriptures, and he was at least invested enough in the people he was overseeing on behalf of Rome to understand, you know, you guys might need uh, renovations here, why don't I help you out with that? And they'd say, thank you. Imagine that. Or it looks like the zealots have it wrong. And you can maybe wonder, was he trying to dissuade the zealots or did he just out of goodwill do this for the Hebrews? Again, we aren't told, but based on how Jesus responds to him, I think you have more evidence for the fact that he was just a nice guy. And that's allowed, by the way, even among pagan cultures. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about, you know, how could he have known about God? Well, we aren't told about his conversion story or every single time a Hebrew proselytes with him. But it's, it's able to be understood even today that if you are in a military position, you don't just stay on base 24-7. You can get involved with local culture. Now, whether you respond to it positively or not is another issue. But when it comes to what we're told see the previous question. 
we can conclude, I think, fairly directly that he heard about God from the people that he was trying to be a blessing to on behalf of his government, and as a result as well would have been uh, someone separate from Cornelius because in the Gospel of Luke, he also mentions this centurion but doesn't do so by name. They would have been in different regions, and it is possible for there to be multiple centurions because, as I said, based on the minimum size of the average Roman garrison, especially one as hot, uh, to use the modern term, as Judea with the regular local uprisings, there was eventually an entire legion stationed in Judea in order to gather the Hebrews and call them during the Bar Kokhba revolt. So Mm. that's uh, something to keep in mind as well. Mm. Just make sure that when it comes to what we can know and what we can't know, we are silent, but you are also allowed to say, what can I know, even though it's not explicitly stated? There is room for that. How did he hear about God? Well, they knew about God, (laughs) and he was interacting with them. I don't think they kept that to himself. It's the same kind of deduction you can use when, for example, uh, how did a Hittite named Uriah see the previous question, stir up a relationship with King David. Weren't the Hittites supposed to be exiled from Israel? Weren't they supposed to be distanced from it? Pagan? No, he had a relationship with David's God, and they had a good relationship until he, you know, did the thing with his wife and then had him murdered as a result. But note, people weren't keeping the gospel to himself in Judea. Likewise, that trend continued even during the time of Jesus. Right, right. Very good. Uh, Yari, thank you. Appreciate that question. Hope that helps you out. Good job, Sean. A uh, question just came in from uh, Salik. Um, how should we discern faith healers Ugh. in these last days? Man, huge thing. Is there, is there genuine faith healers? Genuine, these, um, these healing uh, uh, crusades and such things. People that go across the country to see uh, someone with gift of healing. How can wow. we discern that these days? Well, I guess with that being mentioned, there's uh, it's always tricky because you don't know the heart. God does. And when it comes to what we can or can't test, you can always judge doctrine, what someone claims as to whether that's true or false. But if what they're promoting and how they present themselves in Scripture, no matter how well intended, maybe they learned it from someone who's a complete charlatan and then they're mm. sincerely trying to build up off of that, I can't come to conclusions on that. But what I can do is judge them individually and say, based on this information, they're promoting something directly contrary to Scripture, and what the Bible calls fruit, what naturally comes out of them, is going to be self-evident. I'm trying to get to the passage in 1 Timothy where, you know, you mentioned in these last days, he makes a very poignant statement about the kind of people that we need to be prepared to deal with. Mm. Um, This is 1 Timothy chapter 4, and also go to 2 Timothy 2 here in a second. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now you look at that and you go, okay, so is this like Uh, the Oscars, or they're performing satanic rituals and stuff. Well, no, it goes on to note the kind of satanic doctrine, deceiving spirits and what they'll promote in the church. Verse 3, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 
For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified, cleansed, and set aside for a new purpose by the word of God in prayer. So, and this is a reference to the Galatian heresy for those of you who want to understand the, uh, what's the fancy word for it, the underground baseball, the behind the scenes, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, the idea was that you couldn't, this was one of the earliest false teachings, even during the time of Acts, um, where you couldn't worship the Jewish Messiah unless you observed Jewish customs. The most direct was the sign of circumcision, but other things like if you don't eat kosher, then that means that you're not saved. And if you don't observe the Sabbath, that means you're not saved. Mm. The first council of the church, the council of Jerusalem recorded in the book of Acts, puts this to rest and notes with the examples of Paul, Peter, James, and others that this is clearly not uh, contrary to Scripture. In fact, it was prophesied in the Old Testament and that these Gentiles should understand not to be a stumbling block, but to understand the difference between worshiping the Messiah and just living in light of Christian ethics, Christ-like ethics, that sexual morality and foods uh, offered to idols should be abstained from. But at the same time, Paul gives later clarification, these things or doing these things don't unsave you or make you more saved. The idea is that you have, need to have a heart behind it, a regard for the well-being of others. Yeah. So then going to the faith healings, uh, are there gifts of healings? Yes, they're mentioned among a plethora of others in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. But the question is, are they being used in the way that he describes? Because, for instance, I go to a Pentecostal church. Everyone's speaking in tongues. Everyone's, you know, giving their own private sermon. It's just total chaos and pandemonium. I mean that in the literal sense of the term then you're not going to be able to take anything away from it, and it's in direct, I don't mean vague, direct violation of 1 Corinthians 14. This is not how the church is supposed to work. Whatever spirit is working here, usually the spirit of men trying to garner attention or thinking this is how I act godly just by belting out noises, that's not scripture. Tongues is explicitly stated as a known language. It's not a legitimate sign unless it has an interpretation, and it has two intended audiences, believers or unbelievers, for the purpose of what? For worship, for drawing attention to who God is. So if that's not being done, it's not a gift of tongues, even though a tongue is moving. So in the same way, a healing. What's the purpose of a healing? Well, every time Jesus did it, it was to verify who he was. It was to put credence to the Word of God. Whenever the Old Testament prophets performed some sort of healing, it was what? To show that they were messengers of God, spokesmen for God, that God was speaking and he backed up words with deeds. People are just doing this because, well, that's, that's just what happens in church. That's not a gift of healing, even though healing is happening. So, and, and I'm doing quotations for those listening on the radio. Sometimes these things are just outright frauds. They'll have some plant in the audience or something. Yeah. So when it comes then down to the, the nitty-gritty, so to speak, if a faith teacher is teaching something that's false, then that can be judged even if it's quote-unquote backed with a miracle because a sign is only as effective as the one it points you to. Uh, I said Second Timothy 2, I meant chapter 3. This is verse 1. 
But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. Now, this is where we think, oh, yeah, all those non-Christians, right? No. Pastors. In verse 6, For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning. These people are studying the Word of God, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he goes on to note examples from the Old Testament, or um, we believe it's from the Old Testament, Janus and Jambres. But... um, it notes that they will progress no further, verse 9, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. So with this in mind then, does the fact someone calls themselves a pastor make them a good, a good teacher? No, you have to listen to the teaching first in order to conclude that. Does the fact someone calls them a Christian mean they know Jesus? No, you have to judge the fruit. And that's what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount where he said, by their fruits— not their words, not by their appearances, not by their affiliations, by their fruits you shall know them, what naturally comes out of them. And if you see them as the kind of people who, when they mess up, they make excuses, or when they mess up, they divert attention, that they're more interested in reputation than sanctification, that's a red flag. When you see people who are willing to play fast and loose, if not at all, with the Word of God and just talk about Him, but never actually give citation to what they're saying or reason to trust it on any authority, but Mm. the pastor said it. Red flag. Get away from that kind of influence. And this is the whole point behind this. I have no love for the prosperity gospel. I have no love for the Pentecostal movement and how it blatantly as doctrine distorts and misrepresents scripture, making people depend on emotions rather than on truth. And I know that I have a, a defect in my character that makes me, you know, less expressive and emotive, and I need to work on that in my relationship with God. But when it comes down to it, the reason I don't like it isn't because, you know, I just don't like worship, or I just don't like spiritual gifts, or I deny all miracles. No, I see a place for worship. I see a place for miracles. I believe God can still do them today. But if they're going to be done, they're going to be done according to Scripture. And if they don't, then that's a false teacher. That's a false sign. Why? Because nothing happened? Look at it. No, because what's happening is pointing you away from God and not to Him. He's mentioned a lot, but what is the actual focus of the miracle? The pastor or the one who performed the actual miracle? Now, no, am I saying that if someone performs a miracle in church, that they're a false teacher, it's Pentecostal, it's prosperity gospel? No. Am I saying that everything that happens in a Pentecostal church or a word-faith movement or a healing tent or whatever is false? No, but they need to be analyzed according to the Word. If you don't do that, then you're going to be as manipulative as the uh, individuals Paul was warning Timothy about and telling him these people are going to be in the church, these people are going to be taking advantage of people in the flock, And that in contrast to that, excuse me, that we need to be able to put a distinction between ourselves and the, well, 
I, I've already gone enough on this already, but that, that's the point. What is the sign pointing you towards? That's what's key. If someone performs a sign, test it. Test all things, but hold fast to what is good, First Thessalonians chapter 5 says. Hmm. Abstain from a reform of evil. What's evil, not what's good. Right, right. Yes, very good. Thank you. Salik, thank you for that question. Great question. Hope that helps you out with that, helps you navigate that. If that's something that you've come across in uh, your life. Um, I don't know if you want to pause to, uh, you have, a, I know, a list of um, Bible contradictions that have been noted or sent in from people. And once in a while, we try and throw some of these in. If you want to take a moment to to share one of those with us, Sean. But. Sure, yeah, I got a, a list of the top 50 Bible contradictions on atheist.com, oh, so nice. you know that they're objective. Um, basically, uh, they'll give two verses and make the claim without actually posting the verses, or even the whole verse, just make a claim about them, that, uh, well, this is a plain contradiction in the Bible. Now, the conclusion is a fair one, that if the Bible is in fact in conflict with itself, that it says something that in another place, and in the same sense, cancels itself out, then it can't be trusted at face value because it can't get its facts straight. We believe the reason why the Bible is authoritative for sound doctrine and godly living is because it's able to stay consistent on some of the most controversial subjects known to men. But when it comes to, and this is what I think is key, the claim of there being a contradiction, that's a buzzword that, you know, gets people's attention, but they don't actually know what it means. Uh, if you understand the reference, then uh, you can giggle along with me. But just saying it has electrolytes over and over again doesn't actually make it good, if you understand what I'm referring to. Likewise, just because something is a, quote, contradiction doesn't mean, A, that it's false, and B, that it's even a contradiction. And what is that? A contradiction is a violation of the first formal law of logic, or a second formal law of logic. A does not equal non-A. Hmm. Now, if something and something else, something that isn't the first thing, are both claimed at the same time and cancel each other out, it's not true. If the Bible claims something and then something that is not that thing at the same time and in the same sense that cancel itself out, it's a contradiction. It's not keeping its facts straight. What people usually claim are contradictions aren't contradictions, it's differences in a detail, additions of information, or another subject entirely, reading into the text something it never said, or ignoring the genre of what's being said, taking a poetic observation, for instance, and then reading into it saying, well, it says here God doesn't sleep, and then here Jesus was physically sleeping, so which is it? Right. That's not a contradiction. Yeah. <laughs> so let's ask ourselves, well, what are some examples? Do they actually give verses? Well, they give verses, but they're counting on you, not looking them up. For instance, in, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the 35th Bible contradiction here, it makes the accusation, the Bible contradicts itself in what Jesus rode into Jerusalem on. According to Matthew chapter 21, verses 5 through 7, it says a donkey and her colt, whereas Luke 19.35 says a colt, and John chapter 12 and verse 14 says it's a young donkey. So which is it? Is it a colt? Is it a donkey? Or is it a colt and the donkey? Well, here's the problem. First, you have to know what a colt is. 
that'd be a good start. Yep. Because again, I'm not uh, I'm not a zoologist, but uh, it's a designated term for what a young donkey, <laughs> among other things. But here's the point. Let, let's and most times you don't even have to go to the passage, but let's humor him here. In Matthew 21, verses 5 through 7, assuming that they aren't lying, because uh, some of these are just outright lies, uh, they say that uh, the passage says that he was the grandson and the nephew of Nebuchadnezzar, and neither of them were talking about that to begin with. Matthew 21, 5 through 7 reads, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's a quote from Zechariah 9, 9. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Hosanna, on and on it goes. So what did Jesus ride into on? Well, it wasn't two animals, obviously. It was on the colt, as Zechariah 9.9 specified, and that the passage quoted for us. But the donkey was accompanied by his mama. I guess he was nervous. But... <laughs> We also got to ver verify this. I give other verses. So let's go to Luke 19:35, where we're told in the parallel account. Oh boy, they brought him to Jesus. Who's him? They threw on their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him, and they went as many as spread their clothes on the road. So the colt is specified specifically on where Jesus sat. Now does that conflict? with what Matthew 21 said, no, the colts mentioned and that Jesus sat on them. Mm -hmm. If he, like, you know, went on a magic carpet thing and had to sit on both the colts and the donkey, that looked strange. But we're told in Zechariah 9.9, quoted by Matthew, what? That he was on the colt. Yeah. And what does Luke say? He was on the colt. But for the sake of full clarity, let's also go to John 12.14, where John's gospel also covers this significant event. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. John chapter 14, or excuse me, 12 and verse 14 says, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So where's the contradiction? A bit in phrasing, there's a difference but the same citation as Matthew 21 and the same detail as Luke chapter 19. So where's the problem? The problem is in the person who either A, didn't know what a contradiction was, looked for any distinction in phrasing and said these two things can't be reconciled, or someone who knew what a contradiction was and knowingly lied about it. Both are possible. But when you hear, well, the Bible contradicts itself, the best response is where and when. Because if they actually give you an example, there's going to be problems if you do the simple work of opening up the book and saying where, why, is this a contradiction? Do you know what a contradiction is? And the more, I guess, uh, familiar you get with this, all 50 I've read through them, I've gone through them, I've made videos on them, I've even made jokes about them on my YouTube channel. They're not getting better, they're getting worse. Of the hundreds that have been leveled, maybe two require more than just reading the passage to Whoa. figure out. And when it comes down to it, even that doesn't require much work. There are plenty of commentaries that can help you figure out 
does the feast of unleavened bread cover one day or multiple days that's that requires some like leviticus reading right mm. but don't be intimidated by this a contradiction means something just because they said the word doesn't mean a they know what it means and b they know how to use it yeah. you can be the exception be prepared to defend your faith and oftentimes it just means listening and looking it up yeah are there any contradictions in the bible that you've that you found that, that are really tricky to to kind of reconcile with each other well like i said there are things that require some digging but it's yeah. not a contradiction for example when uh, it notes that judas iscariot uh, left before or after the time of jesus mm. you have to put piecemeal together and note well he could have left more than once right. or this is a lengthy feast he could have done that uh, when Jesus was betrayed by Judas there's some dif uh, difficulty in figuring out so was it on the feast of un unleavened bread or did he betray them to him after they already had the Passover when it was going on but you realize the feast of unleavened bread's a whole three-day weekend so to speak right, right. so those are some of the things that require more reading than just the passage yeah. but uh, again, just going through some of these, I'll just read them off. Uh, going into, like, oh, what did the sign above Jesus' head say? It says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, King of the Jews, or this is the King of the Jews. F for corn's sake, that's not, you don't even have to look up the passages. It doesn't get much more substantive than that. When it comes to ones that require a bit more research than even just in the text, um, there's references in First or Second Chronicles actually, and First Kings about the size of Solomon's stables, mm. and the distinction is because of a copyist error, and that needs to be reconciled. And you could note well, we have copies before the Masoretic text that clear this up, and you look up the Hebrew, it's like the difference between a reverse Y and an X. I, I get mm. why that may have been a typo, but it's no more substantive in doctrine than if you were to, you know, make the accusation. Does it say that Jesus was filled with compassion or was he filled with anger? It depends on the manuscript. That's a quote from Bart Ehrman, by mm -hmm. the way. Um, first of all, <laughs> make sure that when you level the or the, the accusation of a contradiction, you know what it is, you're willing to make attempts to reconcile and that you actually look up the passages. When it comes down to it, it's usually one of those three things, a knowing lie, misrepresenting the passage, overemphasizing a distinction of detail that may require more reading, or saying that a copyist error is a definitive claim, when even if we removed both of the passages, that it would, of course, not change anything about Christianity. I don't care if Solomon could house two... Uh, 20,000 or 200,000 horses. Hmm. We can go to the archaeological remains and figure out he probably had some horses here. Yeah. That's what's important. But when it comes to the charge, it's not as intelligent as it sounds. Contradiction. Oh, four syllables. Look up the dictionary first. That's another one. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for sharing that, Sean. Uh, question here from David. This is a great question for us does the bible teach the rapture i've been told it is a newer concept coming from the 1800s is the oh rapture boy. actually a biblical concept i know that the word itself isn't in there but well it is if uh, you read in the latin vulgate the uh, which of course i do yeah uh, <laughs> from your neck of the woods in uh, first thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17 the word caught up apart so in greek is rapturos in latin mm -hmm. so it is in there. But the idea of the doctrine being taught, uh, the accusation on 
mostly TikTok circles, is the claim that John Darby was the one who uh, put forward, the first person in history to put forward this handling of the end times and believing that there would be a physical rapture before the time of the tribulation, a, a provision, a secret, quote-unquote, second coming of Christ before the visible coming in Revelation 19, uh, taking Revelation as literal, taking Revelation as speaking of the future rather than of the past, uh, reference mostly preterist would take this position of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and that the allegories and symbols of the future are all just references to the blessings that would belong to both Jew and Gentile through the church. Um, I don't buy that. But when it comes to the claim that the only person to put this forward was when John Darby, a pastor, uh, started teaching this because a girl in his congregation had a vision and stuff, it's not only false at face value, that wasn't the reason he was teaching it, but it's false historically, verifiably. Uh, we have sources going all the way to the second century following within a full lifetime of the original Bible. Uh, people like Ephraim the Syrian, and you can read copies of his documents in Proto-Ephraim. You can talk about uh, accounts separate from the Bible that show a cultural influence and in understanding of the end times this way, and the apocalypse of Elijah and others. But when it comes to just the claim, the Bible doesn't teach the rapture, you have to dig a little bit into that and say, okay, what do you mean by that? Meaning the word isn't in there, which is why I started with the little smarmy thing, which Bible are you reading? Mm -hmm. Second is, okay, is the concept not taught? 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, your move. If they're going to say, well, it, it's irreconcilable, it's just not the way that God does things. A provision of escape for God's people before his wrath takes place isn't biblical. Why did God send the ark before the flood? Why did God send the angels to Sodom and Gomorrah before it happened? Why were there two exiles, one peaceful, one violent, when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians in the 7th century? Why is the same thing happening with the Assyrians? Why are you not reading your texts? And then they'd say, okay, well, I, I don't want to caricature. The arguments are usually put this way. And so if you're going to take these approaches when it comes to the, our understanding of the end times, the first thing to default to is, okay, are you saying this because you've researched it or because people you trust have claimed it? Because if it's a verifiably false statement, you don't have to hold that against them. Just pick up a book read it and go, oh, this has literal reams of documentation, almost to the point where the book gets boring because it's just quote after quote after quote of people who've handled the end times this way throughout history and making sure to give citation for that. If they still disagree and say, well, I just don't think, and this is the most generous case, the best possible outcome, I personally don't think that that's how God is going to fulfill those promises. Well, that's put entirely in the future. That's completely allowed. As long as they affirm the deity of Christ, as long as they affirm the authority of Scripture, as long as they affirm salvation by grace through faith, and they don't deny the Trinity, then what's going to happen tomorrow is tomorrow's business. We should be living for and in light of and hastening book of Titus says, the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. If you think it's going to take place during the tribulation, you, you take the Michael Brown route and read books like Why I Don't Fear the Antichrist, 
great, we'll find out real quick who's right and who's wrong when either we witness the peace treaty or we're taken out before it. If you take the position of, well, you know, this is a false doctrine, no one thought that, well, that can be verifiably uh, falsified, I guess. Could have phrased that two different ways. I chose both and ended up with neither. That can be falsified. So if that is the case, do they care about truth? And I can show you where and when. If they have a presupposition, either a hatred of the Jewish people, and so you have to do everything in your power to read them out of the future in the book of Revelation chapter 7, then this isn't an intellectual issue. Arguing with them intellectually is just going to be shooting a 22 at a tank. It'll just bounce right off. And if they come from a, uh, a Calvinist or a Reformed perspective, that's usually just going to be a, a package deal. Well, this, this is my tribe, and I, I agree with them because I have more reason to trust them in handling the Scriptures properly than you, no matter how many verses you give. Look, I'd fall into the same trap, too. People who don't encourage Bible teaching, I, I kind of cringe towards that kind of fellowship. doesn't mean God's not working, it just means I won't attend it. And when it ultimately comes down to it, we answer both to God for how we handled his word and taught, uh, emphasis on certain things over others, as long as it doesn't get into the realm of non-negotiables, end times withstanding, he can be the judge, not me. But that's the point if you make false claims. Bible doesn't teach a rapture. Well, it can, if you're not willing to define it out of existence. No one ever taught a rapture in all of history until John Darby. Well, first of all, I can give you a citation where that's not true. Mm. Secondly, is that coming from you or coming from someone who lied to you? Because that's just not true. And then on and on it goes. But when it comes to the assumptions, preterists, futurists, idealists, Zionists, dispensationalists, you name it, this isn't a non-negotiable issue, but if they state something that's plainly false, then we need to have good conversations to build one another up in the fear and the love of God. But if, on the other hand, uh, it's uh, more a social issue, more an emotional issue, more a racial issue sometimes, mm. or just an, um, just you know a familial issue. I, I'm a pan-trib. I, I don't get involved in those things. Well, then we just won't bring it up. But why would you encourage less Bible knowledge <laughs> than more? Mm. And... and that's, I think, where we can leave it. But oh, the Bible doesn't teach a rapture. Well, what do you mean by that? Three different ways you can go about it, just like with any other doctrine. Is it taught? Is it conceptually consistent? And of course, what's the real issue going on here? That's right. uh, how I'd handle that. Yeah, makes sense. David, thank you um, for that question. Hope that helps you out. Thank you for sending that in to us. We appreciate it. We should have time for another question here. We have a question from Larry. Uh, Larry's involved in a weekly outreach, um, and they interact with a certain teenage Muslim who says that Jesus spoke in Aramaic. So then why is the New Testament in Greek? That's, and I'm glad he specified he's a Muslim. I've got my, my Quran here. Um, the reason why he would bring that up isn't because that's actually an issue. It's because it's an issue that the Quran had and it just didn't know what it was talking about. For instance, in uh, Surah 12, that's Surah Yosef, or Yusuf, excuse me, uh, Ayah 2, uh, it says that we have sent it down as an Arabic Quran so that you people may understand or reason. Um, that's one of the translations. Now, when they put that forward, they say, okay, so if God's going to reveal something, 
Uh, this isn't necessarily from the Quran, but their leaders and their sheikhs, their imams, are going to hand this information to them. They'll say, okay, so if God's going to speak in Revelation, it's going to be in one language, that you can't uh, translate from one language to another. And according to the traditions attributed to Muhammad, this is pre-knowledge that you understand where the Muslim's coming from. You'll hear this a lot then it's not going to be in other languages. It's going to be pure. If Jesus spoke Aramaic, then his revelation will be to an Aramaic-speaking people, because when Allah spoke to the Arabs, he gave them an Arabic, a pure Arabic Quran, Mm. and that's just how God speaks. So they'll read rules the Quran sets up, allegedly, into how God's allowed to deal with people. If the gospel according to Jesus was to someone who spoke Aramaic, Jesus would only ever speak Aramaic. Hmm. Now, there's two problems with that. First of all, language doesn't work that way. Secondly, the Quran doesn't survive that metric because the Quran's not pure Arabic. The word Quran itself, recitation, is Syriac, not Arabic. I, I can just list verses upon verses of examples. And we're talking about, and this will be brief just for the sake of time, but uh, of non-Arabic words that are mentioned in the Quran. For example, the term Iblis is Greek, not Arabic, yet it continuously uses the term for Satan that would be applied in a language other than Arabic. In uh, Surah 2, verse 31, Adam's name is mentioned. Now, Adam is Hebrew, Adam, earth, not Hmm. Arabic, yet it uses a non-Arabic word to describe a individual in a pure Arabic Quran, Mm. which its title isn't even Arabic, so what's going on here? Uh, I'll just give one more. In Surah uh, 2.102, it mentions al-Shahar, which is translated as sorcery, which is Akkadian, Mm. and on and on it goes. So it's not a consistent standard. Jesus spoke Greek because that was the language of trade. The entire Roman Empire based itself around what we call today Koine Greek because that was most accessible, just like English is today. Uh, might be Mandarin tomorrow, but you never know. The idea, though, is Jesus, when he was speaking, could speak both Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, just like many people in these day and age, especially in Europe, have to be able to speak multiple languages because right. so many different people are coming through, and you're just not going to be able to function unless you can communicate in those languages. The fact that I say, hi, my name is Sean, and konnichiwa, watashi wa Sean desu, doesn't mean that I've said two entirely different things. I said, Sean, my name is Sean, in English and Japanese. That's mm. how that works. Makes sense. Thank you for that. Well, good job today, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for your time to be here and answer questions. We'll be back again same time tomorrow. We'll be going live in 30 minutes with our service here at Cabra Christian Fellowship, so you can stick around, or if not, we'll see you tomorrow. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.